0: News about depression, part two. Physical activity not only reduces your risk of becoming anxious or depressed, it increases your chances of recovering. In part one of this mini series, I summarized the burgeoning body of research on the role that our eating habits play in our predilection to and likelihood of recovering from depression and anxiety. The quick and dirty summary of what that research shows is, eat your dang fruits and vegetables. And now in part two, I'm going to delve into recent research on the link between physical activity and the prevention and treatment of depression and anxiety. Physical activity, depression and anxiety, get off your dang tush and move your body. I've discussed previous research demonstrating the benefits of physical activity for preventing and alleviating depression and anxiety in a couple of previous articles, Five Surprising Benefits of Exercise You Never Knew About and Real Answers to the Mental Health Crisis. And the studies just keep coming. Let's go through them one by one. Study number one, high sitting time, is a behavioural risk factor for blunted improvement in depression across eight weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic in April to May 2020. The title of this study pretty much gives you the punchline. Researchers analysed survey data from 2,327 people from all 50 US states and the District of Columbia gathered at nine time points between April and June 2020. They found that while most participants reported a sharp increase in symptoms of depression when stay-at-home and work-from-home policies were first implemented, those who spent fewer hours on their rear ends in the latter months of the study period than the early months were more likely to report that their mood had improved after the initial confinement-related crash. In contrast, people whose daily sitting time increased during the manufactured COVID-19 crisis and who remained more sedentary as two weeks to flatten the curve turned into months of state-imposed home incarceration were more likely to still be reporting increased symptoms of depression by the end of the study period. In other words, quote, sitting more was associated with a slower and limited improvement in depressive symptoms, end of quote. Incidentally, this study did not find a buffering effect of moderate to vigorous physical activity on sitting-induced deterioration in psychological well-being. Or, in plain English, working out doesn't compensate for sitting on your butt all day. You really do need to get off your dang tush at very regular intervals to avoid spiralling into depression. Study number two, prevalence and variability of current depressive disorder in 27 European countries, a population-based study. Remember from part one of this series, that survey of over 250,000 Europeans that found that people who ate fruits and vegetables less than once per week were around three times more likely to be depressed? The researchers also quizzed participants on their physical activity level. Those who responded that they were physically active, which was defined as, quote, doing activities that cause at least a small increase in breathing or heart rate for at least 10 minutes continuously, end of quote, on zero days per week, which was a shocking 53% of surveyed men and 58% of women were the most likely to be depressed. 6% of men and 9% of women who reported that they essentially got no physical activity fulfilled the diagnostic criteria for depression. Unlike fruit and vegetable intake, there did not appear to be a dose-response relationship between frequency of physical activity and depression in this study. The lowest prevalence of current depression, 2.61%, occurred in men who were physically active five days per week. Boston women, those who were physically active only three times per week had the lowest prevalence, 5.2%. It's possible that work-related physical activity was a confound to this study. As noted in part one, the same study found that low-income earners were more likely to be depressed than high earners, and low-paying jobs are more likely to involve physical activity than high-paying jobs. Study number three, physical activity is associated with lower long-term incidence of anxiety in a population-based large-scale study. In this impressive study, Swedish researchers followed nearly 400,000 people who participated in an ultra-long distance cross-country ski race for up to 21 years to investigate the connection between physical activity levels and the risk of developing anxiety. Compared to non-skiers matched for age and other characteristics drawn from a nationwide patient register, participants in the ski race, which requires a high level of cardiorespiratory fitness gained through months of intense pre-race training, were roughly 60% less likely to develop anxiety disorders over the course of follow-up. The protective effects of participation in the ski race were observed in both men and women, although women who finished the race in the shortest time had a higher risk of developing an anxiety disorder than slower skiers. Notably, however, even the high performing women had a lower risk of anxiety than matched non skiing females from the general population. To explain their findings, the researchers cited other studies that have investigated the beneficial effect of exercise on neurotransmitters such as dopamine, the cortisol response to stress, brain derived neurotrophic growth factor or BDNF, inflammation, and oxidative stress, all of which are involved in the development and perpetuation of anxiety. Notably, in mice at least, the increased dopamine signalling within the brain that's triggered by daily exercise persists for a week after the physical activity has ceased. And of course, long-distance cross-country skiing gets you out in nature, which I'll discuss in Part 3. Study number 4, Effects of Exercise on Symptoms of Anxiety in Primary Care Patients, a Randomised Controlled Trial. Prevention of anxiety is one thing, but you may ask, what about treatment of anxiety that has already developed? Don't worry, another team of Swedish researchers has answered that question. The researchers recruited patients who had been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and randomised 223 individuals, more than half of whom had been living with anxiety for more than 10 years, to participate in one of three groups. One was a 12-week group exercise program with low-intensity training, consisting of a one-hour circuit training session three times per week. Two, a 12-week group exercise program with moderate to high-intensity training, the same one-hour circuit training, but done at a harder pace, three times per week, with an additional running session per week, Or three, a control group which received one session with a physiotherapist who provided general advice about physical activity according to public health recommendations and, after study completion, a three-month membership at a fitness facility. Participants were discouraged from participating in any other form of exercise during the trial. All participants in the study experienced a decrease in their scores on a standardised questionnaire, the Beck Anxiety Inventory, or BAI, which in itself is interesting. However, participants in both the low intensity and high intensity exercise interventions had a significantly greater improvement, scoring approximately five points lower on the BAI than the control group, as well as reporting lower levels of inattention on the Montgomery asberg Depression Rating Scale, or MADRSS, item two, with a trend toward greater improvement in the high intensity exercise group. And there's a graph summarising these changes, which you can look at in the post accompanying this podcast episode. You'll also observe from this graph that the scores of participants in the exercise interventions moved from the moderate to severe anxiety and moderate depression ranges to the mild anxiety and mild depression ranges after they finished their 12-week programs. In other words, even in chronically anxious people, increasing physical activity to a level that's easily achievable for most people significantly decreases anxiety to the point where it's a reasonably minor impediment to participating in the activities of daily living rather than a major handicap. Study number five, physical activity reduces clinical symptoms and restores neuroplasticity in major depression. Does increasing physical activity have a similarly beneficial effect on people who are already depressed? Yes, indeedy. German researchers tested the effects of an exercise program lasting just three weeks on not just the symptoms of depression, but also neuroplasticity, measured through the use of transcranial magnetic stimulation, in people diagnosed with major depressive disorder, or MDD. It's been known for some time that neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to change, is reduced in depressed people, with more severe depression correlated with reduced neuroplasticity. In other words, when your brain is stuck in a rut, you are liable to become more and more depressed. As I mentioned in my previous article and podcast, the latest depressing news on antidepressant drugs, evolutionary psychologists understand depression as an adaptive behavior that evolved to keep people focused on the source of their distress until they come up with a solution to resolve the relevant problem. However, if you keep ruminating endlessly on your problem rather than coming up with a solution or recruiting support from others to help you solve it, the depressed state can become maladaptive. Enter physical activity. The German team randomized 50 patients admitted to a psychiatric hospital for major depressive disorder into either a three-week exercise program that consisted of three sessions per week of interactive, non-competitive games that combined physical and cognitive tasks, or a control program of two sessions per week of cooperative games with only a cognitive component. This ingenious study design controlled for the therapeutic effects of both the presence of an instructor and group cohesion, leaving physical activity as the only variable that differed between the intervention and control groups. While both the exercise and control groups had lower scores on two measures of depression, the self-rated Beck Depression Inventory 2, the BDI II, and the investigator-rated Hamilton Depression Scale, the HAMD17, by the end of the study, Those in the exercise group showed more pronounced improvements on the HAMD17, which is considered more sensitive at detecting changes in depressed people, and only those in the exercise group showed improvements in their brain's ability to change. In fact, after three weeks' participation in the exercise intervention, neuroplasticity was restored to the same values as in non-depressed people. In other words, a pretty low-key physical activity program corrected one of the principal neurological features of major depression, the inability of the brain to learn and adapt to change. Considering this finding through an evolutionary lens, our ancient ancestors would have been forced to remain physically active even when depressed in order to survive. And as discussed in another one of my previous articles, should you choose a nice stroll or a killer workout, it depends on which problem you're trying to solve. Low intensity exercise, such as that used in the German study intervention, is superior for helping individuals to focus their attention on tasks that require a great deal of concentration and rigorous thought. In that light it's notable that one of the most significant differences between the exercise and control groups was in insight which in this context roughly translates to self-awareness a crucial prerequisite for recovery Other markers which significantly improved in the exercise group were onset insomnia, ability to engage in work and activities, retardation, that is slowing of thought and movement, agitation, and bodily symptoms of anxiety, which point to an increased capacity of individuals to solve their problems and re-engage in life. And you can see a chart depicting these changes in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Accordingly, as the lead author of the study noted, quote, the more the ability to change increased, the more clearly the clinical symptoms decreased, end of quote. Study number six, the longitudinal associations of physical activity, time spent outdoors in nature, and symptoms of depression and anxiety during COVID-19 quarantine and social distancing in the United States. This study tracked over 20,000 adults who participated in the U.S. Kaiser Permanente Research Bank, a collection of lifestyle surveys, electronic health record data and biospecimens from people enrolled in one of the largest non-profit healthcare plans in America over the first several months of the manufactured COVID crisis, that is April to August 2020. During this time, unprecedented and non-evidence-based diktats masquerading as public health measures, such as stay-at-home orders and closure of gyms and national parks, were imposed in the majority of U.S. states. The Kaiser Permanente study found that, quote, participants in the lowest physical activity category, no reported physical activity, had the highest depression and anxiety scores compared to each successive physical activity category across follow-up each higher physical activity category had lower depression and anxiety scores, of quote. In other words, there was a dose-response relationship between physical activity and the prevalence of both anxiety and depression. The more activity participants engaged in, the higher was their psychological well-being. I'll discuss the time spent outdoors in nature aspect of this study in part three of this series. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.